Hi, this is Russ Teitelman, and you're listening to Fab Four Free For All. So we are talking with Nigel Sinclair, principal of uh, White Horse Pictures, founder of White Horse Pictures. So, Nigel, we had uh, a press release in July of 2014 where it said that Apple and White Horse and Imagine Entertainment were teaming up for a Beatles documentary on the touring years. How does something like that come about? Well, um, you go back to 2002 when a company with the great name of One Voice, One World, who are uh, archivists, archival researchers, approached Apple and said that as part of their work, they'd noticed that people were starting to use home entertainment cameras, you know, home video cameras, you know, actually old-fashioned cameras, Bell and Howell sort of thing. Sure. And the Beatles fans had captured a lot of footage, especially in the first year, because the first year when they came to America, Epstein let everybody film everything, private parties, obviously concerts and so forth. And they thought this was kind of interesting. So they approached Apple and said, we think there's maybe a story here, the 64 World Tour, which was a groundbreaking event in cultural history and social history as well as in rock and roll history. We can put that together. So they started assembling stuff, and for whatever reason, not much happened for a few years. They, they got some clips and some footage and some great clips, mostly black and white footage, some color of people in the audience. And the problem with those cameras was they had limited batteries, and the film would run for about 20 minutes. So people would take a burst. You know, they, was, they would shoot it for 18 seconds or 20 seconds. You'd never get a whole song. So it's a little disjointed when you're trying to use it in a movie. Right, right. Time passed, and, and I was producing Living in the Material World, George Harrison, with the Martin Scorsese film for Olivia Harrison. And I, and I knew Jeff Jones socially, who runs Apple, sure. the Beatles Apple. And he asked me then, would I come in and pull a film together for them that was originally conceived to be about 64? And I went on and finished Olivia's film in 2011. 2012, we started talking about it. And by 2013, we hatched an idea to make it about the touring years, to make it bigger and, and the art bigger. And, of course, we had what um, the One Voice, One World guys had pulled together as the place to start. So okay. then what happened was um, two things happened. First was I was um, working with uh, Ron Howard with a number of other producers on a film called Rush about Formula One racing. And I asked Ron, we're sitting around. I said, Ron, have you ever done a documentary? And he said, well, actually, no, although subsequently he did do Made in America shortly afterwards. And then I said, do you like the Beatles? And he said, well, that's a ridiculous question. Everybody likes the Beatles. <laughs> so um, through my good friend, Michael Rosenberg, who's the co-chairman of Imagine, we approached Ron more formally and said, would you be interested in, in directing a film about the Beatles? And he, he said, yes, he would actually. It sounded rather fun and joined the team. So then by the end of 2013, 2014, we really were ready to roll. Apple got the board, which is, of course, comprised of Paul and Ringo and Olivia Harrison and Yoko and Lennon, uh, all approved the project. It was an official Apple production, which is a really big deal because they haven't produced a feature film since Let It Be in 1970, <laughs> yeah. although they produced the documentary series in 1994. Yeah. And we decided the first thing we wanted to do was, and of course they were all very excited that Ron was involved. 
first thing we wanted to do was to go back to fans because what really changed between 2002 and 2014 was the advent of social media. You know, you ask somebody when was the iPhone invented, they all think, well, about the turn of the century, but you know, it wasn't. It was 2007. <laughs> so in that period, we've gone from analog world, which OVOW did a great job in, in the circumstances with internet, but nothing else, email in 2002, to a world of social media and Facebook and so forth. So when we went out in 2014 with a call out to people for footage, you know, the Beatles had a Facebook site with 50 million people on it. We had, you know, the power of their website, and we had the power of social media, and we were absolutely deluged with people offering clips and footage and photos and all kinds of wonderful things. So that was a very successful process that became the building block of this film, along with yeah. everything else. Were you aware, and everybody else aware by then, that there were bootlegs out there of all the footage and you know many, many DVDs of, of incredible... 64 through 66 touring footage? Yes. I mean, I'm a Beatles fan probably as much as you guys are, so I got, you know, a lot of bootleg footage, and, you know, if you go on YouTube, it appears and then it disappears, people take it down. Yeah. But, you know, there's only so much you can handle watching badly recorded or badly reproduced footage. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And in terms of telling a magical tale, you know, you may have seen... For example, our Manchester performance footage on YouTube in some grainy version, to see it on the big screen with the sound mix, the color balanced, and Paul Crowder's recut the performance from the four or five cameras they used is a wholly different experience. That segment um, in particular is tremendous. Yeah. It's absolutely you tremendous. Know. Thank you. Can't wait to see and it on a big screen. Yeah. It does a mind-blowing on a big screen. I saw it in London last week, and it is mind-blowing. Well, we also got a lot of stuff. I mean, one of the things that... I've done a lot of interviews with journalists, and of course the others have done even more in the last month. Almost every journalist, and I guess they tend to be self-selected as Beatles fans, say, you know, I'm a major Beatles fan. I thought I'd seen everything, but actually you've got a lot of things I've never seen. And I think that's partly they've never seen it before, and partly they've never seen it like this before. Nigel, I wanted to go back to the, the She Loves You with the Manchester ABC Manchester Theatre. You said you recut it. What footage was available and what made you decide to cut it because when we were watching it we were like holy this isn't the exact thing we're used to seeing so what what made you guys go back to recut it and what were the materials that you were able to use that maybe had been seen before well we had the original what are called camera stems from the original performance and paul crowder our editor under ron's guidance uh, was able to just reposition the shots and balance them a little tighter and a little better from the original Granada performance. Manchester was shot in 35mm technoscope, which was wow. the most advanced thing they used at the time. 35 technoscope, which is why it looks so great. It wow. does look great. Um, Absolutely It beautiful. does, yeah. And we, and we um, saw a rough cut, and it still looked incredible. You know, we wanted to bring out the luminous color of the performance because you probably know this, but the Beatles, they only recorded those two songs, yeah, and they right. did them quite a few times. And... They're very sweaty because they've been playing them again and again and the audience going nuts. And it's one of it, the very rare color performances of the Beatles recorded live at that period, you know, 1963. Remember, they'd only become stars. They didn't become household names in the first quarter of the year. And when I say they were, at that point, they'd had one hit, Please Please Me. Love Me right. Do went to number 16 in the UK charts, and I can remember the first right. time I heard it. I thought it was 17, but you might be right. Let me do a 17. <laughs> <laughs> See, we are geeks. I'm sorry. Yeah. People thought yeah. that uh, Brian Epstein had uh, bought 
copies at a store, but we they found out that wasn't true. But people always think that. So no, you no, know, no, I think that that was absolutely true. In fact, uh, in the extras to our film, Frida Kelly says she bought a copy of. Uh, 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 please please me that she didn't have a record player because they were all so loyal to the Beatles and she didn't even work for them oh, they, they had a fierce loyal following from the earliest days that's funny wow. so did Free I wonder if Frida really only bought just one <laughs> she probably bought multiple I'm thinking it was a lot, probably like five shillings or seven or sixpence I'm thinking wow. you know for us in those days that was a serious amount of money sure well sure. yeah but Brian you know. could have given it to her to buy them <laughs> to no buy them. I'm just <laughs> let's not go there so you were Nigel you were really you were a first generation fan believe it or not I was 14 when Love Me Do came out I saw okay. the Beatles in Glasgow when I was 16 at the Odeon Theatre the last tour they ever did, which was one of these bus tours with five acts. It was a makeup tour that had been moved because of, I think, going to America for the Sullivan Show, although I didn't know this at the time. And they did a 5.30 show and a 7.30 show, whatever, and it was Billy J. Kramer and Dakotas. And an interview in the film with a Scottish interviewer who moves her hands around is yeah. completely dazzled. Yes. And the two, George and Ringo, are sitting on, on a step. Yeah. Yep. That very day of that interview, I went to the 5.30 show that day. I was wow. just about wow. to ask you if there was any concert footage that was, that showed up of the performance you went to from any fans. No, because I've tried to bring it up in my mind so many times since I started working on this project, yeah. and I'm confused as to what I remember and what is. I I remember outside the crowd swirling rather like that hard day's night footage in when they went back to Liverpool when they. Yeah crowds are swirling but inside as you went in there were so many ushers with torches there was one for every two rows and they were just shone the torches if you stood up they made you sit down wow. there's no way they let anybody film it was very tightly controlled almost like uh, policing it you know yeah you know early reviews call this uh, film very u.s centric what's your take on that that i think was matt viner's comment in the daily mail right which, uh, yeah. by the way a very nice review which yes i um if all the reviews I understand, you know, funnily enough, we carefully included the European tour dates in 64 and in 65. And, of course, we go extensively to other venues. We go to Stockholm, we go to Australia. But the moments when they collided with social circumstances that were dramatic were more in the States. You know, you went to Australia. There weren't any big issues in Australia of, of culture or society. And the United States is probably more... Probably the baby boom generation and the beginnings of seeds of social change were more pronounced in the United States. So, of course, we had the very high-profile story of um, uh, that Kitty Oliver tells in the film. We oh, have um, very poignant. You know, we have the absolute chaos of storied venues like Hollywood Bowl and, and of course, Shea. So, I don't think the film is U.S. centric if you add up the number. But eventually, these U.S. tours became defining for the Beatles. Did you find uh, Nigel that? In a way, obviously, as you said, you're trying to tell sort of a magical story, but you're also, of course, limited in a way to what comes comes through your de you know over your desk in the course of putting this together. So, sort of a two part question: Was there any clip in particular that came to light during the uh, putting all of this together that absolutely blew your mind? Uh, and also, is there anything that that for whatever reasons you were unable to use that you wished you had been able to? Uh, include in the film, a missed opportunity in a way. I think when we started, we had the what we call in documentary terms the assets. We had outtakes and bootlegs, and we had official films and stuff from libraries. And you'd be surprised how much stuff there is in libraries around the world about the Beatles that has never been seen or certainly never been presented 
in a context. Because that's one of the arts of filmmaking like this. Can I, I give you an example? Sure, sure. You have all seen the U.S. press conference probably many times, being Beatles geeks, right? Yes. And yes. Lennon tells these jokes, you've seen them. Now you have Eddie Izzard whispering in your ear saying, watch this now, watch what they're about to do. See how they're going to answer back. And they come right back. And suddenly you go, aha, that's exactly what they're doing. I see. And you sort of realize that the Beatles humor isn't just, oh, they're funny. It's actually a very specific kind of crowd control riff that they've developed from their days in Hamburg. And suddenly that clip takes on a whole new life for you. Certainly, yeah. we've had that comment from people. And you can apply that throughout the film to clips that you, you just talked about Manchester. Well, by recutting Manchester and giving you different camera angles, we've taken the scene that you've seen. And of course, when you see it on the big screen, you've, we've made it feel alive. But in terms of clips... When we started working with Ron, one of the things that he was very focused on and pushed us hard on with our editor, Paul Crowder, who is, by the way, a completely genius editor, and I've done about six films with him, and Mark Monroe, our writer, who, you know, is a writer on The Cove and sure. Sonic Highways and a wonderful writer. And we, we and Ron, we became a team together, the four of us doing this. And Ron, we would sit in the editing room, Ron said, I want to get closer to the band. I want to see how they made decisions. I want to see what it was like to be inside their bubble. I mean, they're locked in a room, so they're writing songs. They probably wouldn't have written those songs if they weren't locked in a room. How did that work? So we deal with a section in the film where we have uh, them talking about the songwriting, Paul talking about the songwriting. He's talked about it before. But in this context, it starts to make sense because we do realize that they are trapped inside this world. And... I think that uh, in one of the extras, Paul Greengrass, who gave a wonderful interview, which we didn't use in the film because we could only use so many outside people, but a wonderful extra. He talks about the scene in New York when they're driving into the city in a, in a limousine. The four of them are in the back seat because they always seem to all be together in a car. And there are these horses outside riding alongside, keeping the people away. And he said, you have this feeling that they've now moved from a reality they knew to a world where their reality is shrinking. Mm, yeah. And of course, they wow. went, as you know, because Ringo's told the story many times, they went on to the plaza and retreated to one of their bathrooms yeah. to get some privacy because people are allowed into their room. And although there was security, once you broke through the outer perimeter, I think people just wandered around, you journalists and so forth. So going back to your question of pieces of footage we found that blew our minds, a lady in San Francisco called us up and said, I filmed the Candlestick Park concert, and I was there, and I was in the front row seat, or very close to the front, and I actually exposed it. I watched it once in 66, but I've never opened it again. I've got it in my storage room. I think she literally said she kept it under her bed. <laughs> would, would we like it? So we actually felt a bit guilty because we, you know, people always want lots of money. We, she was very generous. We transferred it onto HD. And it was genius what she had. You know, that scene at Candlestick where the guys are walking out for the first time? Yeah. Mm -hmm. right. the, the show, that scene, and then the scene, a lot of the footage at the end, there are three different bootleggers, if that's the right word, or you know, private yeah. owners. Footage there, there's the getting into the, the van at the yeah, end. We never saw that part. Truck. There's Barry Hood's footage, which has been quite widely seen as wonderful. And there's her footage. And between them, we were able to piece together, like um, archaeological discovery, or historical discovery, this last Beatles show, which otherwise would be lost to the ages because it wasn't officially filmed. Wow. And although you can see the guys had cameras on stage, Paul doesn't have the photographs that he took then, or if he does, he can't find them. Because <laughs> um, you can see him running back and picking his camera up. Yeah. And um, Olivia, who's an incredibly 
good archivist doesn't have any pictures from George of that. So that was an amazing find. I think that in terms of other footage, the rollover Beethoven in Sweden, that's a really good performance of George. That's fan footage. Yes. And we found the soundboard from the show. Oh, Somebody wow. had a recording of it, and we matched them up. That's actually live playing there. I thought that was the real cut, and it was absolutely mind-blowing. I mean, we've had the radio broadcast from, you know, the 63 Sweden, and we've had, you know, obviously the, the drop-in. That role over Beethoven was just absolutely phenomenal. And then there's, um, in Australia, uh, is it You Can't Do That that they're playing? I think it is. Yeah. I believe so, yeah. um, Where the camera goes to the side of the stage and moves to color. That's actually somebody had a color camera. Wow. It's pretty shaky, and we've stabilized it more since you've seen it. It's still pretty shaky. But you can see that George Clark's the camera person. It's probably a pretty girl. <laughs> you can see George Clark, it, and he, when he goes to the mic, he's very focused because they were unbelievably adept at singing these really quite sophisticated vocal parts in this rough-and-tumble world they operated in, because it was rough-and-tumble. No monitors. But, I mean, they're, they're like King's College Cambridge choristers. They can hit a note exactly under most adverse circumstances. And then he looks back at the girl again, if you watch the show. He's clearly looking at her and sort of, he's, he's in a daze because he's performing, but he looks dead at the camera and gives the camera an angle. Well, we've all seen is, living in a material world, so we, we understand what that's about. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> John had made reference many years ago in the, you know, that incredible uh, rant that he did with Rolling Stone with Jan Winter. He had talked about the early tour and said that it was a, it was a lot like Fellini's Satyricon. Was there a conscious decision, obviously, when you, when you made the film? And it's not really the idea of, quote, whitewashing, because you, you didn't need to go there. But was there a conscious decision made sort of to kind of leave out just some of the personal things, you know, meeting with Dylan at the Delmonico, blah, blah, blah. You know, was there a thought to kind of just keep it a little bit centric to the music, the happening, you know, without going into those areas? First of all, there wasn't any conscious self-censorship at all. Right. Uh, right. by the way. And in this particular period we're dealing with, you know, you think with four young men, three of whom are single, you know, and they did literally work all the time. Right. Sure. And they were in each other's sure. companies. They were never alone. So whatever um, social life they had, we were not very exposed to it in preparing for this film. And I think what we were trying to do in 100 minutes was to paint a picture for you of four guys who to use Mark Monroe's very clever idea that Ron actually loved, which is the four guys, they, they donned the Beatles suits and they set out to conquer the world, literally, mm -hmm. metaphorically and literally, as the beginning of the film tries to convey yes. to the viewer. And they go with great zeal on a journey which, if you like, is fueled by the live performances because at that point they could arrange live performances but they couldn't arrange studio recordings. Right. And then finally they get a studio recording and they record, as you well know, until 12 or 13 hours, their live show. It is number one for an untold number of weeks in Britain and around the world. And suddenly here they are with this. And, you know, we look back on this process now and it sort of makes sense to us and we can put some shape to it. If you're living it, there's no shape. You don't know whether you're going to ever go to America again. You don't know what's going to happen. And occasionally they must have, we asked Paul and Ringo in the interviews, were there moments when you thought, wow, this is really happening? And they said... Yeah, when they got to number one in America, when they were in Paris, in that famous scene, they knew that that was a breakthrough. Then when the Sullivan show and they arrived, they were completely taken aback. When they came off the plane, you can see it on their faces, and Paul confirmed to us that they were completely shocked by the level of 
arrival. And I think that when John says you've got any time off when you go back from England from that Australia thing, which I'm not sure is still in the film, is it? But it's in the extras. He says, no, we just work all the time. You know, we're going to do Hard Day's Night. We go to America. We got a tour of Europe. And there was an element of they were so single-mindedly committed to realizing this. Because remember, you know, John and Paul have been doing this since 1957. Right. Yeah. Right. right. George joins them in, what, 58 or 59. Now, in 1960, he'd become the Beatles. They've been doing this for three years, albeit as John was 17, Paul was 16, George was 15, right? They've been doing it. Let's take 1960. John is 20. The others are George is 17. So they finally get it in 63. They've been going for six years. I mean, we think 63 to 69 is a long time. How about, you know, 57 to 63 with no comforts? Right. So I think that the indirect answer to your question is that although they tried to have a personal life and to have fun and party, nothing got in the way of their music and their career. And, you know, we kept looking for, is there any more to this? And, you know, I'm not saying they didn't have some yeah, fun. Yeah, no, of course, parties, but it's the idea but right. we kept looking for it. And the thing which obviously sort of changed once they stopped touring was they really seemed to be like guys building a business, except they were building right. an art collective. I mean, they were like an art collective, really. Mm-hmm. Because that, that decision-making process that they had, which permeated everything. And, you know, Ringo says, I, I think in the extras, he says, you know, we really were together all the time. You know, we shared hotel rooms. We always shared a car. When we were working, we were never apart. Yeah. And you can sort of see it in this period, which is the fairy tale period. You can tell by their body language when they're hanging off each other. They're not hanging off each other for the camera. They are very comfortable with each other. Mick Jagger used to call him the four-headed monster. He's John Paul George. Yeah, Ringo. and Eric Clapton. Yeah. Yeah, and they all said that. But the interview where George is tapping Ash and John Lennon's head. Uh, brilliant. <laughs> think about that interview, right? John Lennon, who's by then 21, is a strong person, a very forceful personality. Most people who meet John Lennon probably worry about him. George, who is like his little brother is completely trusting in his relationship with him and kidding around and quite comfortable putting ash in his head. <laughs> to me, that was the most beautiful thing because it told you just how close they were. Absolutely. Yeah, it's a, fun, it's a very, very funny bit. Hey, guys, this is Tony from fab for free for all If you're enjoying the Nigel Sinclair interview, we are sure that you will enjoy Robin Mitch's conversation with Larry Kane. Larry is one of the key players in the Ron Howard film Eight Days a Week, The Beatles, The Touring Years. And uh, Larry is an extremely interesting person. So if you want to hear their talk with Larry Kane, visit our YouTube channel, Fab Four Free For All, on YouTube, and check out the Larry Kane interview. Nigel, you said the picture's 100 minutes. This easily could have been three hours or four hours. Uh, What was the process of cutting it down to that point? And the other question people are going to be asking, so I will ask the question, there's not a lot of complete musical performances in the movie. What was the judgment about not having complete musical performances in the movie? Well, the first question, which is the length of the film, Ron always felt Apple wanted us to make a film, a feature film documentary, not a miniseries. We did think at times there should have, could have been a miniseries. And when you're making a film, you know, there's a certain wonderful artistic discipline to the precis, if you know the English expression precis, involved. <laughs> the discipline of figuring out how to tell the tale. and This was a poem, not prose. This was not meant to be a prosaic journey. This was a poem. They put the suits on, they conquered the world, and then finally, when they couldn't do it anymore, they took the suits off and they went into the studio and became the Beatles for the second phase of their lives right. as Beatles. 
Right. And that was it. And we knew that about 100 minutes was the right length of the film. You know, it could have been 110, it could have been 90. It sort of felt that that was the length. And things that we took out, we, we took out a lot of things that we really missed. It was painful. Beautifully cut bits of Australia and scenes in Japan and so on, which some of which are in the extras, by the way. Yeah, we good. have a great extras package. Uh, that was your first question. The second question was the, the length of... In, in a film like this, and I've done a number of them, when you put in a full-length musical performance, it usually brings the movie to a dead halt because it's a different part of your brain. You guys, you remember Marshall McLuhan, the, the hot medium, sure. the cold medium? Yes. Yeah. It's yeah. like you can't watch a movie about soccer and watch a whole soccer game because you're going to a different place. And what happens is the music slows the movie down in a way, and I don't want to say that this music slows the film down. It's a different experience. So we had more music in the film, and we found that to keep the energy up in the journey, with the, to keep the audience there, we needed to try and find the balance. I found this with my Who film. You know, I had the whole of Won't Get Fooled Again, the greatest song ever recorded, maybe, certainly one of the greatest rock songs, you know, in there, and me and Paul Crowder, the, who was directing that film, you know, and we would test it with audiences, and they'd say, is there too much music? And they'd all put their hands up, too much music. So the next time we cut it down, we'd ask them, is there too much, too little? They all put their hands up, it was too little music. And the third time, <laughs> we said, is it just right? And they all put their hands up, and we knew we'd done it. And it feels like, in the, I've seen this movie with more music, and I've seen it with less music, and it feels like, because this is a tale of the Beatles. Right. It's not meant to be a concert movie. There right. are great concert movies, and of course, you know, we have in the movie theater as a, as a special theatrical extra, the Shea footage, you probably know that, right? Yes, absolutely, yeah. Which was the Beatles' gift, if I may say, it's not for me to say that, but it's a gift to the fans, because they gave that footage and nobody paid any more money for it. Um, <laughs> you know, as an extra, we wanted people in the theaters to see what it was like to see the Beatles live. Uh, one last thing for me, and then I'm going to ask you if you want to tell the fans anything. As far as the colorization of some clips, what was the decision to do that, and and why, if it's a historical piece? What we felt was there's advantages to colorizing, because colorizing has become so sophisticated now. The advantages are you can see detail much more clearly, and it puts you in, there's a temptation to think, that the world was black and white. You know, when you first time you see first world war footage colorized, people think it didn't look like that. The grass wasn't green, it was brown or gray, <laughs> right. you know, black. What we decided was, Ron felt that what we should do is we should colorize anywhere where there might have actually been a color camera. In other words, the footage you're used to seeing could be black and white, but there could have been a color camera there. I mean, it helped Blackpool filming. By yeah. then, color cameras were widely used in television. There could have easily been a color camera there. Sure. Right, right. Sure. And secondly, we looked, we wanted to have a photograph of the scene so that we could authentically colorize it. So with the press conference, which we colorized, we have a great photograph of Pan Am and the back cloth of exactly the colors. And we very carefully, with great craftsmen, made sure that the colorization matched the actual photograph. And we have a few photographs, so we're able to kind of make sure we had the right balance of color tones. We didn't colorize Sullivan, because everybody knows that wasn't. But you've seen these color pictures of Sullivan, and there's one in the sure. film, and you sort of miss it, because it does look two-dimensional. Yeah. But everyone knows of Sullivan, there was no color cameras there, whereas everywhere else that we colorized, there could have been color cameras there. Washington, D.C., is that colorized? Because we weren't that, sure if that was new footage. That is colorized, that okay, is colorized that is and that is the... You know, everyone gets to have one exception to their rule. That's what I keep telling my wife. Okay. Um, and, and we colorized Washington, D.C., and it is 
fabulous. Oh. Well, you know, the I mean, funny thing about that is that in the anthology itself, the Beatles anthology, there is one shot of George in color that they cut into Washington. Yeah. So you really aren't taking an exception. You're actually right because there was there color there. There a color camera there, yeah. 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 So and there was an 8mm well, George I, in color, so, you, you know, you didn't yeah. do anything wrong. Washington, D.C., there could have been a color camera there. They did have color cameras. Right. And we use various different sources. When you see the final film, all of that choppiness between the NBC footage and the original CBS film, whatever it was, is gone now. But in color, when you see Ringo drumming from the side, you guys probably know. I mean, they're still jet lagged. They arrive there. There's no sound check. Mm-hmm. The people mm-hmm. are screaming. And although they play to large audiences, they've never played to 8,000 people. Right. You know, and the sheer, at some point, you know, the warmth and the energy of people screaming is overwhelming, and it disorients you. And if you're not used to it, and remember, they were not used to that level of screaming. They were used to two or 3,000 people screaming at them. They come out, and they start playing, and they're singing in tune, and their instruments, as you probably know, are facing the wrong way half the time. <laughs> yes. And they've got jelly babies, and their feet are sticking to the floor, which is, again, very disorienting. Well, actually, you know, Nigel, that was jelly beans because people <laughs> didn't know the, the difference. <laughs> and people have thrown, you literally see bags of jelly beans and actual jelly beans. And as you know, which hurt. Jelly beans are much harder than jelly babies. Yeah, and they hurt. I know, yeah. And they, and, it, it was sort of like someone had told them what the roadmap was looking ahead, and they knew how to be. Because in, in any other circumstance, you know, this whole business that they were a collective, and it, it is a miracle. I mean, Ringo said in the interview, we didn't use it, but we did two great interviews with both Paul and Ringo. I mean, they were really great interviews. Said, you know, we leveled each other. If one of us was getting big-headed, the others would come at him. And yeah, if one hmm. of the ego, one was down, we'd pull him up. And although, you know, Dick Laster talks about that in the film a bit, and you, you, it is amazing to me that they kept it together. I have to throw this out there, Nigel, because it's come up recently. And as Beatle fans, and of course, obviously, we're fans of the Stones. I'm a huge Who fan, so thank you for Amazing Journey. But you have Keith Richards now in the last week or two being Keith. Two, yeah. it, it was this year's version of I Smoked My Dad. And Keith is saying that you know the Beatles were not much as a live band and all this. You know, do you think that for the non-hardcore fans, do you foresee this sort of revelation that the Beatles really were a hell of a live band? I mean, that's what this movie seems to put across. Oh, I think so, incredibly so. And in fact, if you see Shay, I mean, the Beatles had... We can all argue about why this music is so enduring, but to me personally, the vocal harmonies and arrangements for Beatles music are at a level of almost classical perfection. Mm -hmm. You know, as we know... They didn't feel their songs and groove it. I mean, not for me to say how they did it, but it would appear to us from the outside they didn't feel their songs and grooved it. They arranged their songs, and they all had perfect pitch. So when they're singing, take Twist and Shout, you know, where they go, ah, ha, 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 ha. They're hitting those notes. I mean, they're hitting five-part harmonies, but there's only three of them. So they're identifying the notes of the harmony, but landing on the three most important notes. I mean, that's completely different kind of music. Um, yeah. John Lennon's guitar playing is incredibly groovy as we know now yeah. and if you watch him and Ringo in the chaos you've got him and Ringo like holding it down you've got Paul who's really a lead bass player yes yeah, and absolutely. if you watch Paul's fingers I mean he, he's got the most beautiful hands he's playing like a piano player on his bass yeah and really leading the melody rather than following it and then George is doing these really precise and that's what you know Ringo said about George 
George understood notes. There's a correct note to play that will make this piece feel like it's absolutely perfect and it'll last for 50 years. And George is playing those notes. And I think that you, you can't compare bands. I mean, I love the Rolling Stones. I, I'm, I play in a Stones cover band. Oh, cool. But um, you can't compare them. They're a completely different part of the brain. To me, the Beatles are classical rock music that will last forever. Look at this, you know. Do you think people will be discussing this in 50 years' time? You know perfectly well they will. Yeah, absolutely. Because you've got the personalities. You've got the story of the Beatles, which is like if we'd written a movie, you, you, it couldn't be better. Coming from Liverpool, the fact that, you know, in 1962, George is living in a house with a toilet at the bottom of the garden. By 1964, he's one of the foremost famous people on the planet. Everybody loves that story. And then you've got the music is amazing. And the whole, not just the live performances, but also the cultural sweep of their shows. Nigel, does your Rolling Stones band cover I Want to Be Your Man? <laughs> <laughs> no, we don't. But we could. We could. I, can I tell you one other thing that blew sure. my mind? Absolutely. Sure. We were covering Jackson and Gatorville. We, Larry Kane, who is one of the heroes of this project, Agreed. shared all his archives with us and became endlessly helpful and is the nicest man and a wonderful man and i think it's a blessing to the beatles journey that he was there and he's still with us and able to tell his stories larry came we were covering the jacksonville gator bowl thing and that we got the beatles saying that we won't do it and we knew this was significant because we knew that i just watched the movie Freedom Summer, which is about the thousand students going to Mississippi. Yeah. And I remember thinking when I was watching it, as this was in 2014, you know, while this movie's going on, the Beatles are playing in the North to great joy. And here in the South, you have this really troubling event. I mean, troubling would be an understatement, right? And of course, and the lead guitarist, talking, I was talking to my band, said, I worked on this great thing today, the Beatles project. I was telling them, and Willie said, you know, I read an article in Mojo about some lady that who's still alive, who, who went to that show because it was desegregated. I said, we've got to find her. So for wow. three months, we hunted her down and hunted her down. And finally, we found the journalist who'd interviewed her. We couldn't find him for some reason. And we got hold of Kitty Oliver, and you've seen her in the film. Absolutely oh, poignant. And, and Kitty's coming to London to the premiere, and she's going to do press for us. And, oh, wow. and I just was so... And we interviewed her, and I said, Ron was with We were putting her in the movie, you know. And <laughs> you know the best part about that story? It happened exactly as we described it. They got together. They said, we're not doing this. I'm sure Brian Epstein, if you're Brian, I don't, you know, I don't know what he said, but I would imagine he said, guys, this is not your fight. Hmm. Well, I agree with you, but you can't change this. And they said, well, we're not playing there. We're not doing it. Yeah. And as, as Larry Kane said in the film, you know, they faced down Americans, you know, whatever you want to call it, a part yeah. of American society. And, you know, I'm sure the management were annoyed with them, people saying... It was only apparently five days before the date. And then Kitty went to the show. And you heard what she said, because I, you know, I, I know her quite well now. You know, she yeah. said it was completely terrifying. Because, <laughs> you know, they weren't particularly happy, probably, the audience, that the show was integrated. There were only 15 African-Americans went to the show, and she was one of them. Wow. Really? That's how few there and were? she said, I was surrounded show? by... She said it was the first time she'd ever been that close to lots of white people. Wow. Because <laughs> the South was dead. It was an apartheid culture. Yes. And she said also, interestingly, that a lot of her African-American friends did not approve of her going to the show. Wow. Why are you going hanging out with all those white people? You want to be white? So it was a very interesting, complicated situation. 
contrasted yeah. to Whoopi's experience. Which well, who was, said that they were colorless to yeah, her? Yeah, colorless Yeah, well, because well, well, I think Whoopi lived in the North, right? Yeah, yeah she yeah, did. She yeah, she lived York. in New York. Yeah. yeah. We want to wrap up, but a couple of things real quick. You want to tell us anything about Shay to whet people's appetites? Yeah, I think that the, the Shay concert, Giles Martin, who, who is, of course, a George Martin's son and is, is a sure. wonderful musical producer in his own right, has managed to pull out the screaming so that the show, you can hear the band playing. And it's just really visceral and exciting. You know, if you go into the cinema, there they are, 10 feet, 20 feet high in front of you. Yeah. It's like you went to the Beatles show and you actually stood 20 feet back from the stage. And the power of their energy and their performance, I mean, John Lennon singing, you know, Dizzy Miss Lizzie, or sure. it's just amazing. And I, I think the thing that strikes me is watch them when they go out and they're looking at each other. How loud that noise is. It's like you're standing behind a 747 at Heathrow Airport by mistake, and somehow it's turned its back on you on the edge of the runway, and you can't hear a thing. And you realize that the Beatles are looking at each other, and they're calling to each other through the microphones. Yeah. And saying, John, Paul, can you hear me? And they just go for it. You see that security guy actually cover his ears when they come out of the dugout. Right, yeah. Because he, he just is overwhelmed. It's so loud, it's so loud. But there are two songs in particular I'm concerned with because they weren't really, well, supposedly not filmed because of different circumstances, that she's a woman and everybody's trying to be my baby. Have they been added to the film? She's a woman's not in the film, it's in the end soundtrack. I okay. don't know the whole story about that. Okay. Everybody's trying to be my baby. I don't think that's in there. Okay. As a final question, because I know we have Larry Kane, we're actually going to be interviewing in a few moments, and we really tell him I said hello. Tell him I said he was the hero of the show. You know what? The movie really takes off, no pun intended, when he comes on. I mean, the beginning is obviously backstory a little bit, so when he comes on, it's it's really fascinating. But is there anything that you would like to tell our listeners about the film that you think they may learn from it, or that you'd like them to enjoy from it, or anything else? I think that, you know, when you look at your heroes, what do you want to learn from them? What you learn from the Beatles is the power of brotherhood and the power of being together. And, I mean, they had good values and they were loyal to each other, but they decided to go about this. If you if you got a friends and you can do something with them, you can work with them, go for it and really, really protect it. Because, you know, the Beatles were four strong personalities. And in the period we're talking about, they just set out more than anything else. Their relationship was sacred to each other. Wow. And that's how they did it. It's amazing. And we can think it? of all sorts of young people today who've had that kind of fame at the age of 16 or 17 who are sure perfectly nice people who just completely fall apart with it. And the Beatles did not. You know, it's funny because they're only, if we always think of them because they wore suits. We always think of them as older than they really were. But they were 20, 24, 22. Yeah. And, and dealing with all of the, the mania and the craziness. And, you know, you don't think, I certainly know that at that age, I was not up to the task of something like that. And it really does show in the film. And you really do take us into the eye of the hurricane, as was said by the Beatles in the anthology. What will be in the bonus material? Has it been chosen yet? We've got a couple of larger pieces that are essays on things that we dug deep in in the film that we couldn't include in the movie. Right. We're excited about things that we feel will be a revelation about the Beatles' music and about culturally how they work together and their way that they were like the girl bands in America who were very equal. The Beatles were very equal. They didn't have one leader, as famously right. people have talked about. We've all heard that before, but this film, I think, really shows you what that actually means. You know, wow. it's one thing to say it. And, and I think we have some scenes. We have Australia and we have something from Japan. We have some scenes that, I mean, deleted scenes always make things sound like they were 
you know, deleted. Right. But there are scenes that there wasn't room for in the film that we've done a little deeper dive on, like on the Ronettes, on Ronnie Spector. Yeah. And we also have a lovely piece uh, about Liverpool and the older guys in Liverpool. It's very sweet. Now these people in their 80s in Liverpool who were there at the beginning with the Beatles. Right. And finally, we took three fans that we found and we interviewed them and we cut together a piece and I think two of them went to Sullivan and one of them went to Washington. Wow. We cut together a piece really asking the question, you know, what was it like? What were you thinking when you did this? <laughs> you know, you're 14 and Brian Epstein calls you to a lawyer's office in New York and says, uh, Beatles coming to America, we need some fan clubs. Will you be a fan club in New Jersey? And, they, and you're 14, you say, sure. <laughs> then you get to go to Beatles concerts, so you meet them. And it's like being Neil Armstrong. You walk on the moon for three days and then the rest of your life is fun. But you had this magic moment in the vortex of fame, which uh, uh, was really interesting. Fab Four Free For All was edited and produced by Tony Chiguardo at Word of Mouth Studios in Westbury, New York. The opening and closing theme is My Dolly by the band The Badge, featuring longtime listener Jeff Slate, available on its debut album Digital Retro and recent Best Of compilation, as well as from the Fab Four Free For All website. Thanks for listening to Fab Four Free For All.